Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Andrea Lipinski and Matt Bianco, and we are on book three of Boethius' Constellation Philosophy. If you thought we were talking a lot of Plato the last two episodes, buckle up, right guys? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we were talking just off the air how much even direct references in this book, but uh, let's start off with a, a little summary. Matt, do you want to... You want to give us a summary this time of, of book three? No, I mean, Andrea is kind of the queen of uh, summaries here, but I can try. It won't be as good as Andrea's, but it starts out with, I think, with him basically saying, it worked, it worked, I'm healed, you, you've you saved me, thank you, <laughs> everything's great, I understand it all now. And then she... Uh, Pushes back on that a little bit and says, oh, okay, well, or no, he he's, he knows he's not done because he says, I'm ready for the hard stuff. Let's do the hard stuff. And then it moves into um, a conversation where they're trying to define what happiness is. Well, they start by saying what the good is and then describing what happiness is and then working through all of the things that people confuse with happiness and Uh, working through why those things aren't actually happiness or why they aren't actually good. But they do get this whole, this whole notion out there, which is pretty common amongst the ancients. Um, Socrates talks about this a lot that the good is, or that people are always pursuing the good. And if we're, if they're, if they're not pursuing the good, it's not because they're, they want the evil or the bad. It's because they think it's the good. So it's always some sort of, you know, mis, misperception or misconception about what is. And then I noticed that the conversation goes from speech making and poetry to the dialectic. Mm-hmm. Now there's a Q&A question back and forth. Yeah. And again, about the value of these things, these perceived goods, they're, they're going back and forth on the perceived goods or perceived sources of happiness, wealth, power fame fortune so the most of the book i think is going through those things right the power wealth pleasure fame respect honor glory whatever um the and and then they move into this conversation about the simple versus the complex right that that the uh you know the simple is that which can't be broken down into parts because it has no parts and that the good is that. And so then what are we doing when we try to go after the good in its parts, like wealth as a separate thing, like as a part of the good, um, except good, the good doesn't have parts. So it's, that was kind of interesting. And then, and then they connect it with God, that God is simple and that God is whole and that God is the good and that God is happiness and that the source of happiness then is to become God and to, or to be divinized uh, in the, in the Latin, it uses the word uh, divination or divinization or something. Um, And then for me, you're in section 10. Yeah. Which is really long. Yeah. And then in section 11, it goes back to the dialectic, kind of going the back and forth there and 
they talk about this is the section I think where they talk about animals and plants and they're trying to find what is the universe, the one thing universally that everybody pursues because then that thing would be the good. And they get to this idea of life that every creature, every created thing pursues its self-preservation, its life, even though they acknowledge that there are people who, because of circumstances, choose rather to give up on life than to continue in it. But by nature, we all pers- we all breathe during when we're sleeping to, in order to stay alive and all of that stuff. But then the desire to stay alive is connected to is understood then to be the desire to be one because when I die, my soul separates from my body and I become not one. So to stay alive is to remain one is to be one, uh, which is again, to say, to be like the desire to be like God, to become God. So, yeah. And then book 12, I think was uh, the thing that my takeaway from book 12 was this, the idea that, that they're, that things that are not that are not. So evil is nothing. Evil doesn't exist because it's not, it's not one. It's not whole. It's not life. It's not whatever. So that's my, those aren't good as Andrea's, but there you go. There's my summary. (laughs) I don't know if my microphone picked up on it, but I was flipping through the pages, looking at the book in order to do that summary. (laughs) It was not from memory. (laughs) That's what they, uh, that's what highlighting in notes are for, right? Like, so the right. Kobe likes to, I mean, and this is something she picked up from the apprenticeship, but I think she likes to, she's really sticks to that whole retitling sections yourself thing. Like, like she does it in the, in her epics and then things like she did it here also. That's why I know she did it in here too. But, uh, this copy, it's helpful. Yeah. I was, I mean, so obviously we joked it before about how much this, Relates to Plato, but one I wish I should have warned everyone this was the longest of the five books <laughs> last week. Uh, but two, I found you know we talk a lot in in our circles about how um, the the early Christians kind of um, brought the the pagan ideas in, into the light of Christ, and and um, I'm sure it happens in lots of within lots of church fathers' writings. I know it does, but of things I've read, this is one of those the places where I've it's so clear that he has he he takes a kind of through what the philosophers brought before and then brings that Christian element in with lady philosophy about what are what are what we're actually seeking for uh it, it related to God. Um, so those it's it's fun to kind of dig into that actual transition there a little bit in, in Boethius. Yeah, I I was remembering uh, what was the book that I, that book I read? Thomas Cahill's book on how the Irish saved civilization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember a passage in there where he says that St. Patrick never, well, I don't remember exactly how he puts it, but something along the lines of St. Patrick never asked the Irish to abandon their myths and their folklore and their fairy tales as pagan, but rather showed them how all of the things in their myths and fairy tales were fulfilled by Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he does say this, he uses some, some version of this terminology. Mm-hmm. He says that St. Patrick used the myths and the poetry and the 
folklore, fairy tales, fables, whatever, of the ancient Irish as a kind of Old Testament for them. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and I, I just remember reading that and thinking like, that's, it's kind of amazing to think that, that that's probably the case for every civilization. You know, we, I mean, we have the, the, the Hebrew version of that, right. With the old, with our, our old Testament. And we see, we see very clearly how all of it was a tool to prepare them for Christ because it's, because it's, we're told that it is, you know, explicitly in the scripture and that how Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. But Patrick understood that for the Irish, and I think the early church saw this with the Greeks and the, you mm-hmm. know, the Romans and, you know, all of these people groups out there, um, you know, missionaries to China would do this with Chinese um, writings that all of these people groups had fables or myths or fairy tales or whatever, you know, folklore that was pedagogical for them, that was mm-hmm. a teacher preparing them for Christ. And then Christ fulfills it, all of them as well as fulfilling the old Testament and that they're the, the source of their salvation comes in Christ, but they recognize Christ as the source of their salvation because they see how he, you know, fulfills what they've, what they've gotten um, and this seems this, the, I mean, this is, I think Boethius is an example of that, of, of using the, you know, the Greek philosophy and Greek pagan texts and stuff mm-hmm. in, the, in that way. Thanks for drawing that out, Matt. Yeah, I couldn't, I mean, like you mentioned, he spends the first search, the, the first several sections going through those pieces of what people seek for happiness or, uh, as means to happiness. Um, and I couldn't help even in the setup of that thinking about our previous reading of with Alcibiades, where he talks through like, well, why do you want to do this? And why do you want to do that? And why do you, want, what's your, what do you, what's your actual reason for wanting to be, be the orator? Right. And, um, and it's just felt very similar to, uh, to that. But what struck me the most with it was that lady philosophy in, in each instance shows how the thing pursued is actually actually undermines what you think you're receiving from it. Like wealth actually makes you less secure um, mm-hmm. each, each time, right. She just kind of sets that up and then, and then shows it. Yeah. What can we, can we pause for a second on at the very beginning there on what is probably a pretty common sense and obvious line to all of us, but she says, talking about this medicine that remains the taste indeed is biting but when received within it turns to sweetness <laughs> and i think we get that like it's it's pretty common sense pretty obvious and and it makes sense to all of us when we think about it with like actual physical medicine of you know i have to drink this gross cough syrup but the the sweetness that it comes will be you know i'm not coughing anymore i can sleep I can sleep. Right. And, uh, but she, that she clearly means something deeper than that. Doesn't she like the medicine he's tasting is not actually, he's not, she's not talking about the actual physical taste of it. Cause he's not eating something physical, right? There's something more, the, the, the taste is more an emotional taste or a spiritual taste, right? Like it feels bitter. This is emotionally or spiritually going to hurt. Yeah. Right. 
but when I when I get when I get the benefits, when the benefits of the medicine come, I'll be able to recognize the sweetness of it. Mm-hmm. I, I had a friend once who um well, I have a friend who he had he he had a an uh, eight or a nine or ten year old son or something that before I knew him that had passed away from like child leukemia or something. And I remember asking him one time if um, he could, if he could bring him back, Mm -hmm. if he could, if he could not have that happen, would he do it? And he said, no. And I asked, and I, you know, asked him why. And he said, because I, I wasn't a Christian before that. And the, the, well, he said he was, but he wasn't, he didn't, he was like in name only kind of a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And after his son died, he and his wife and his other son were, were so driven to the Lord by that activity or, you know, by that, that happening mm-hmm. that he would, that he knew it was better for them to have lost their son mm-hmm. than it would have been to have kept him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's setting aside it, that there were, you know, some other circumstances might have done it. But, you know, just the, the, the sweetness of the medicine made the bitterness of the medicine worth it. And I, th- I think he, my friend, has experienced what that line is really kind of getting at, you know. Anyways. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that she then takes him through because she doesn't just point out these things abstractly that other people pursue are uh, not really the, the, the end they think they are. She, she talks to him about his own, his own wealth, right. His own uh, security. Um, at, at least through some of these, she, she points to him directly. Um, so I have to, I have to assume that that's kind of some of the bitterness to be point to, to point out to him that you were pursuing or putting your hope into into some of these things more than maybe you realized um, where they were taken away from you. And that maybe his footing wasn't as strong as he, like in philosophy and, and in, you know, reason weren't as strong as he thought they were um, before, before these things were removed from him. It's interesting to me how logically she attacks it. I mean, this is a spot where um, you can use green, but first and then, mm-hmm. and like she just walks it through very methodically. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's the right word or not, actually, but it, it, logically, it's it's really clear, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated that. Uh, she was like, okay, well, first we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. First, we're going to show you the causes, the cause of happiness. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to look at the pattern of true happiness. You know, and she constantly orients him. Okay, well, we just did this. Now you need this. So mm-hmm. she she stays yeah. on it the whole way. What's the uh, what's... refutations too along the way, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it. You know, it, this may look like it's doing this, but then it's not because of this right. or whatever. You know. Yeah. And she doesn't have any of the what? What are the? What's it called when there's a missing a hidden premise? Like, yeah. She. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, just do a blank line. <laughs> well, in English, it's called a hidden premise. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's the logical terminology? Yeah, the logical terminology. But she she tells him like an enthymine. There you go. She doesn't even leave any of those floating around. Like she really takes him through each piece. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting if that that's how this then that. I mean, she connects it. Yeah. Well, it's mm-hmm. interesting that that's how this book that this book runs because the last one ended in poetry, and even it talks about that at the very beginning of this one, right? That he was he was enchanted and spellbound, which is just another reference to what the what what music can do to you, right? It can, and that's that enchantment can be for your good or for your ill, I guess, depending on the the, mm. the motivations of the poet. Um, according to some on that note, right, if we go before right before what Matt read, she says, "I myself created it in you." Mm-hmm. The desire that he's expressed, he says, "I now think myself capable of facing the blows of fortune." Mm-hmm. And she says she created that desire in him. And that's because we talked about how she in previous books, how she she was trying to go back to how far she back she would have to start with him. You know, when she was asking about what does right. he know? What does he still know? The state and of his mind. So mm-hmm. after chasing off the the harlot poet muses, um, she she still ends up having to say, OK, he needs some gentle medicine. Right. It's almost like he needs soothing music, soothing poetry because that's how far back she had to go with him and give him kind of a poetic um, entry point back into the philosophy uh, before starting this kind of more, I feel like we've talked about very step-by-step logic, rhetorical argument, refutation, covering all the bases. Um, But that came after having to kind of soothe his soul a little bit with Mm. a more poetic introduction to the, to, Mm. to wisdom and to, knowledge last book yeah even for someone who was so steeped in in philosophy before his fall right like when he's when he's broken he has to be restored with a little bit of poetry and music and like a child almost Mm -hmm. i i didn't see this come back but maybe it did and i missed it but in the second poem at the beginning of the actual poem part uh, she says my pleasure is to sing with pliant strings how mighty nature holds the reins of things and so I wanted to see her continue and I guess yeah where where does she continue how does nature hold the reins of things yeah I remember nature being brought up as you know embodied nature uh later i thought but are you uh, talking about in the second poem yeah she starts off you know how it starts off in prose and then it goes into poetics i don't know how to phrase it when they're all each a poem but then there's prose and poetry in each poem (laughs) Um, when it makes that transition mine phrases it as nature holds the reins of things. And I wanted to see how she does that throughout the whole book. I'm just curious if y'all saw that, how nature holds the reins of things. Well, I wonder if that was, if if, if that part of that might be the the way nature keeps like the, the, that it's nature that is proving our desire to be, to be alive. That's what I was wondering when, when you did your summary. Yeah. Yeah. If it's this idea that that l- life is the is the one thing that everything is universally 
desires. Is, is everything pursues. Yeah, because the only the next place that I have where I see in my highlighting and notes where nature comes back in uh, as capital N nature is yeah. in book. Uh, I mean, is in section uh, eleven, I think. Um, yeah, section eleven. It's it's in the prose part, like the for us, Andrea. It's on page like one hundred six. It's in the second page of that, and it's it, it it's in this section talking about thing you know things striving for life um nature gives each one whatever suits it and and as long as life is possible to us prevent them dying just think how they're all nourishment through their own roots and then it goes and how and then a little further down how painstakingly nature is to ensure that all things are propagated by the multiplication of their seed everyone knows that they're like a kind of machine not only for the duration of their own lifetime but for the almost everlasting propagation of the species uh and then about half a page down for often when there are, are reasons which force death upon a creature nature turns away in horror but but the will accepts it and on the other hand the work of procreation which alone gives mortal creatures their continuity and which nature always desires is sometimes curbed by the will thank you so that's that was the only other place i saw nature show up so that's the only thing i, way I could think of it tying into that earlier poem well, the, the next sentence I I have mm-hmm. marked that you just read because she says so like all all of what you just said that right sometimes procreation is curbed by the will so entirely does this love of self come from drift of nature not from animal impulse <laughs> so <clears throat> excuse me but she even there seems to be saying that th- this nature that we're calling it is more than just some sort of animal impulse. It's more than just, yeah. what's, what's the term that we use and we modern use? Instinct. It's not just instinct. That's right? what our translator uses. It calls it natural instinct. It is yeah. on the on the positive side. Yeah. Comes from our line is to such an extent does this love of self-preservation stem not from conscious desire, but from natural instinct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from that, so, so conscious desire, mind says animal impulse. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you just keep going with the wording here, providence has given its creatures one great reason to go on living, namely the instinct, instinctive desire for the greatest possible self-preservation. There is no reason, therefore, for you to have any doubt that all things have an instinct instinctive desire to preserve their life and avoid destruction. All right. That's the across the board. The, the Latin says, areo haec sui carita, caritas non ex animali motione. Hmm. Not from the motion of animals yeah. or the, the animal, the motion of the animal or the probably animal animus, uh, anim, you know, animal, animal, animal motions. Hmm. Anima, and that said ex naturali intentione procedit hmm. but from natural intention yeah and here it minds he calls it natural instinct but yeah i think this idea too is where the line between the pre-christian pagan and the and and then the Christian view that he's drawing out really like, like there's this agreement that the, that or, or there seems to be this agreement between the philosophies and, and theology that 
the happiness is 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 tied to life right that that's what all the other things are actually striving toward is some preservation of life um whether it's the wealth or the power or the pleasure even this enjoyment of life i guess but i, I but that 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 but that there's ultimately no um well Plato brings in the idea of the of the of the immortal soul, so he at least allows for something beyond the physical life that that would be hopeful. Um, but that's a big distinction, I think, with a lot of a lot of pre-Christian pagan thought. I think is that some of that comes to an end when your physical life ends, right? Wealth and power and all these other things, and so it's a different view of what that looks like to preserve life I had not pondered a different view of, of life being to what is it to live uh, we're trying to figure out happiness Andrea. we're not trying to figure out how to li- what living is <laughs> what does it mean to live <laughs> That's where my head went with Brandon's comments. But all right, go back to happiness. If Lady Philosophy were here, she could help you. But you're stuck with Brandon and me. So, (laughs) yeah. So I find it interesting that nature is mentioned in the second and the second to last of the sections of this book. I don't know if there's any more chiasm happening in this book. I haven't I didn't look for that. But uh, in the last one, I noticed that. The last section begins with something about the the ode to Plato that this book is. Um, Then I said, I agree very strongly with Plato. This is the second time you have reminded me of these matters. The first time was because I had lost the memory through the influence of the body. And the second time because I lost it, I'm guessing the memory, when I became overwhelmed by the weight of my grief. Right. So we can lose memory which I'm wondering about life and living and uh, what, what without memory, what are we? So we lose memory or recollection possibly, right? When there's the influence of the body and the weight of grief. What was the influence of the body? Cause that he spoke of here. Uh-huh. You don't know. You just stepped into my wheelhouse. Great. Go. <laughs> you told me I couldn't have lady philosophy here. I could have you and Brandon. <laughs> I mean, I, I know because of Plato. I don't know if I know from this book, but okay. it's Earth. The influence of the body is just being born. We're going back to yeah. life now, Matt. But all right, go ahead. Right? Because we have because memory is what we have from God. Okay. Right. From the Christian perspective, it's the law written upon the heart. Okay. But as soon as we're as soon as the soul is born into a body, right? The body pre- prevents us from remembering that. Right, think of the Phaedrus, oh. right? The chariot coming down and yeah. being born, and it forgets everything that it that it saw. Um, so, and the even the even the people in the cave in the Republic that right. that were born into that cave, they had knowledge beforehand that they've they've forgotten. Um, that's recollect. That's the art of recollection. The act of recollection, teaching us recollection, is to try to remember that stuff. Mm-hmm. So the reason we forgot it is because we're because of the body, because we're connected to a body and the body distracts us, blinds us, confuses us, looks the wrong way. Clouds, doesn't remember. Yeah. But all the Clouds, metaphors right. she's used here. Yeah. 
Mm. So there's this, this, the need to recover that, but that's what philosophy does. Well, that's what education does generally, or should, but then that's what philosophy does, you know, more fully. So he recovered it from his time with her. And then he lost it a second time because of his grief. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That helps. Apparently it's easy to recover from the easy. second time than it is the first time. First time it's hard to recover the memory, but once you've recovered that memory, you can lose it again. But for him, at least it's easier to recover because. Well, think about that with anything that you learn, right? They tell you that once you learn how to ride a bike, you can get back on again. Right. Like I'm going to wobble because I haven't ridden in a while, but I'm going to figure it out and getting back on a mountain on my bike. I'm going to wobble, but I'm going to be able to do it again. Or easy, easy the second time if Lady Philosophy shows up at your house, like to help you out. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm thinking about um, so the neural pathways, and I, I don't know, if, like once you have the neural pathway for something, it's you can find that pathway faster the more you travel it. That's definitely what Boethius was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> like, and of course it was easier for me this time because I had the neural pathways already established. <laughs> <laughs> My head is going to lots of different places to explain this. <laughs> he does have a fog in his mind, you know. So Okay, so on that, if we're going to hang out in this last section again, I'll take us to the sentence right prior to her going into poetry. Um, and she says, again, it's the Ode to Plato. You have learnt on the authority of Plato that we must use language akin to the subject matter of our discourse. Right, so she gives us that sentence. And then she goes into a story of Orpheus. Wait, where are you? The last um, section of this book, where, yeah. where we just were, book 12. Yeah. All right, I started with the beginning of it, the body and the grief. Oh, I see. Okay. Now I'm at the end of the prose part, the last sentence of the prose part. She says, we must use language akin to the subject matter of our discourse. How does yours say it, Matt? You have, thou hast learned on Plato's authority mm -hmm. that words ought to be akin to the matter of which they treat. Hmm. Okay. Because then she goes into story. So I just, I thought that was interesting. No. Sermones rebus oportere esse. Words. Uh, what's oportere esse? Uh, words ought to. Uh, well, oport? Like, is it? It's not a port. Oportet. To carry? Uh, no, no, no. Um, Man, we use it all the time in Latin class, but I can't. I, I know it. what it means, but I can't translate it. <laughs> um, like to be fitting to, or to be to comport with, to um, yeah, I, I'm not, to be akin to. <laughs> and then rebus, rebus locuntur, the, the things we're talking about. Yeah. Dequibus locuntur rebus opotere esse sermones. Mm. Although sermones, I don't think means words 
particularly specifically, but sermones means like conversations or or sermons or discourse. Discourse. Yeah. Okay, why did you bring that up though? I don't. I just thought it was fascinating that she ends this whole book with a story, but prior to the story that she beautifully tells, that's what she says. That's the preparation for the story, the connection to the story. That the the language we use must be akin to the subject matter of whatever it is we're talking about. Hmm. Like it just seems kind of random all of a sudden to say this, you know? Like, and then she goes to story and it ends. Yeah. Okay. So I you're saying something, you're getting at something that I was feeling. Uh-huh. When I read the book, yeah, I felt like section 12 mm-hmm. was like, it felt like all the way through section 11, we were getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in book 12, section 12, it seems like she pulled back and like, there's something more coming that she's preparing him for, but she's not telling us what it is yet. Yeah. And so then there's a story apparently that's preparatory. That's what I think. That, that's the yeah. best, right? Like something is shifting here all of a sudden. Um, and I mean, you know, so what we've talked in here about the um, the form of the divine substance, um, you know, and she wants to know if he thinks that God controls all things, is God at the helm of goodness. She's talking about these things. And then here's a story because our words have to match whatever it is we talk about. Yeah, I, I wrote at the end of I wrote at the, I wrote at the, rent, the end of the poem. Yeah, I wrote was the medicine bitter. Right. Like, I don't, there's something coming. Yeah. We're not even there yet because book, book three was not bitter medicine. No. But it starts out telling us that he's about to get bitter medicine. Right. So it feels like this is a giant preparation. It was way, he was way too agreeable for that bit medicine to have been bitter. Right. Everything made sense to him. He was like, yep, 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 yep. I mean, yep, that's where she ends point. it, right? As you've learned on the authority of Plato, like we already agree here as well. Yeah, that's a good point because I was I was seeing it as like she's pointing out, like I said earlier, that some these are some things he's trusted in in his own life and pointing it out to him. But you're right; he's mm-hmm. he's pretty agreeable to like, yeah, you're right. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't seem that harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it seems like you know maybe this is like putting the IV in, but they haven't actually turned the t- turned the drip on yet. You know, <laughs> like. Right. Yeah, because um, if we if we put this one next to book the first section in the first section if, and this last section the twelfth section if we put those near each other like one two and eleven are both about nature yeah. if one and twelve and one is when she says um, ah, I'm not going to try to pull it from memory uh, that she created this in him this desire right because she says. I knew it, she replied. Once you began to hang on my words in silent attention, I was expecting you to adopt this attitude, or rather, to be more exact, I myself created it in you. She's a little cocky, right? Um, the remedies still to come are, in fact, of such a kind that they taste bitter to the tongue, but they grow sweet once they are absorbed. So she's preparing for that. But that idea at the front, like, I created this in you. Um, and now she's saying, all right, the, the words have to match the subject. What, what's You know, like, I think that that's the same thing. Hmm. So now she puts it in story, so it's still gentle. But I think it's coming. Yeah, hmm. something big's about to hit. Yeah. Okay. Can I just can I just say I think it's a little cocky to call Lady Philosophy cocky? <laughs> just saying. 
<laughs> I mean, you do you, Andrea, but <laughs> we're fine. So she's lady philosophy. <laughs> I yeah, like I mean, it. I think I like it when the translator makes it seem um, not so just uh, uh, flat. That lady philosophy isn't flat. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I, to use the word cocky, it's it's like she's she's a presence. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and she does say that in the Latin. She says, "Enque uh, tua." Tuae mentis habitum well, expectavi well, codes verius ipsa perweki or perfecti. Mm-hmm. I did it. Yeah, <laughs> I perfected yeah. this in you. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 she has personality, right? She, it's not just kind of a. Boethius didn't just create kind of a carbon. I mean, a cardboard cutout um, interlocutor for himself. A logic textbook. It's not just a logic yeah. textbook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting then because it's a it's the if it's set up, it's the longest of the books. Mm-hmm. And she does like systematically knock down all the kind of things normally pursued for happiness. Mm-hmm. Um like uh that's that's interesting if that's all prep, right? If that's all setting us up for what's really coming. Um I mean, when I was first reading it, I separated the book in like the first eight sections. She's talking about false happiness. So then there's prayer in the ninth section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she's going to talk about true happiness. Like, I, well, it's I not, wonder, there's not, it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder if this part, it'll be interesting to see as we go forward. If this part is the, like Matt, you said it was easy for him to recall something he had already, once he, he had it. Easier than the first time he had to learn it, re- relearn it or whatever from being born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If this is the part where it's like just reminding him of all that he's reminding himself or maybe, I mean, he's writing it, but Lady Philosophy is reminding him of all the things he already knew before the tragedy hit him. Um, But I wonder if something, some if new insight is coming for him, if new insight that he's gotten through the tragedy, like, this part was easy to, to it, this wasn't the hard medicine. And it was like, as you said, easy to re-remember it once forgotten, but there's a, there's some like next level philosophy coming that, <laughs> that he had missed previous to his suffering. I don't know. That's yeah. coming with something heavier. Andrea, I think you should, um, before that, by the end of maybe either for next call or before the end of our calls or maybe for the Q and a or something, like see if you can track down the 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 um I just forgot the word. Where it goes the one and twelve go together, two and eleven. Oh, chiasm. The chiasm. Because ch- section four is about dignity or honor mm-hmm. and the false and the dignity that comes falsely from the tyrant. But that would correspond to chapter to section nine, which is prayer. Oh wow. So in huh. prayer mm-hmm we're conferring dignity to God and he's returning it back to us. Yeah. And in book four, he's trying to get, they're trying to get, the person's trying to get dignity from the tyrant. Yeah. The false dignity from the false, ty- you know, from the false. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and I think it's in that section too, where she says, and to get that dignity, you have to go beg for it. 
from this false tyrant. Mm. So you have this kind of, there's even a kind of a, a, a precatory aspect of it there, right? Where you're praying or begging yeah. this person to give you, to give you these honors. Now we have to go do. And then it's false honor. But then mm. in book nine, you're, you're asking, praying for, for it from God and, and giving, ah, oh. so those, you got your chiasm it might be stronger than you realize. <laughs> huh. You should, you should t- tease wow. that out. Yeah. Mm. Probably make a good formal article too. Interesting. Yeah, this. Ah, uh, now I wonder because it's in the middle of the it's the middle book. Like how far it extends into the other books. Now that you're saying all that, the chiasm. Of this I know, right? The whole. If the whole, book three is chiastic, then the whole dad gum. It has to be, is, and you got to go back and find it, yeah. right? Like. Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. man, okay. I, I can I can feel a third read coming on of, of so one and five, two and four, and then three internally. Yeah, uh, probably within one it's chiastic. Within five it's chiastic, right? And the and you know Boethius is is a musical right. philosopher, right? Like he, I mean, he's got books on music and he's a very mm-hmm. musically oriented. I mean, he's the one who named the quadrivium. So is he? Mm-hmm. Huh. And. From a previous conversation on the other podcast, I was having with someone. He um, he was when he died. It was finished by one of his students. I think was working on, um, well, what they would have called a textbook, not what we call a textbook, but pairing r- readings of from various people on on things, right? In a so, you know, if you're talking about a particular natural science, different writings from different people on that on that area of natural science. So, so there were those re- those readings are together i forgot what it's it's got a name i'll have to find it uh in that previous interview i can't remember the name off the top of my head but i think it's in that quiddity interviews um show notes maybe (laughs) we'll track it down but yeah he um he was thinking about that a lot right like music and the and the different aspects of obviously he named the quadrivium but the different aspects of the liberal arts um and and all the thinking on them was a big part of his life not not just philosophy proper right so i thought this was a fun piece because it painted in um section 10 we're still kind of in the middle of the prose for me it's the third page of it but um I think we can get it from the one line. She says, it is impossible for anything to be by nature better than that from which it is derived. Yes. Mm. Wait, I have that mark too. Where is that? Okay. Um, Find it. Yes. For universally, nothing can be better in nature than the source from which it has come. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there. I think in the context, she's clearly talking about god right that mm-hmm. everything we have is from god and then if if the philosophical presupposition is nothing can be better than the thing than the than its source then nothing nothing that we get in this world can be better than god because its source is god right right but when i was reading that i actually wondered is this the problem is this like part of the reason for the cultural attack on the classics the classical world, the classical education or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Is, talking. is, is, um, to admit that we, that, that what we are today 
has its source in that would be to acknowledge that that is greater. Hmm. If, if, if the classical world, the classical literature, classical philosophy, classical theology, et cetera, Plato. and then especially its fulfillment in Christ, right. is it, did you say film? No, I said Plato. Oh, Plato. <laughs> I was a film, like, yeah, classical film, right? Oh, no, no. You're on to something. <laughs> but the plays, you know, all that stuff, right? Yeah. And then you have, you have its, um, its fulfillment in Christ. Right. And from that point forward, that becomes the source of everything that we have today. It is the source, right? We're we're the, the Western civilization, the source of Western civilization is that, that era. And if that's the source for who we are today, it it is, according to this, we cannot be better in nature than it is. And what we've derived from. And so if that's the case, but we need to be better then we have to reject all of that and we have to make ourselves the source. We're starting something new. Mm. We are the source. Mm. We will be the greatest and everything that follows from us will look back to us as the greatness and its source. Okay. We'll keep talking about that, but I have to admit first that my head went nowhere near that. (laughs) My head went to what my mom taught me in the kitchen. My mom Which taught is? me in the kitchen that if you're making anything, you can't make anything that's any better than the worst ingredient you stick in it. Mm. All right. So like if I'm trying to make a cake and I've got old butter, it's going to show up in that cake. Yeah. 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 Or yeah. rancid oil or whatever. That's I a great analogy it. for the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. It is. That's, Absolutely. That's, that's where my head went to my mama. Yeah. It's good. It agrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote, I underlined that, drew a big star in the column mm-hmm. or in the margin and an exclamation point and a question mark. Cause I was like, is it true? Right. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, but it, it holds true in cooking. You know, and from there she brings out, she shows, you know, that the supreme good is the same as happiness. So God is the essence of happiness. She reminds him of that. And then heads over to geometry, right? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And so she pulls on geometry um, and logic to say that while only God is so, his, his, he, only God is divine by nature, as many as you like may become so by participation, may become divine by participation. I don't know how to just, I don't know how yours shares it. Um, by participation in that nature. Okay. And yeah. though in nature, God is one only, yet there is nothing to hinder that very many should be gods by participation in that nature. Yeah, I like that she uses geometry as the example to say then by the same logic, she mm-hmm. takes it to men. Did yours use geometry, Matt? Like, I can't see how it could have skipped it. Yeah, it does. At okay. the beginning of that paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, well, and that's how, I mean, because before she goes into logically walking through why all these, pursuing all these different things is not going to succeed. Um, she talks about how they are 
they are part of the good and of happiness. Like they, um, that they, uh, hold on right before section, uh, it's in two part two, uh, for the poem, uh, but to return to the pursuits of men, in spite of a cloud of memory, the mind seeks its own good. Though like a drunkard, it cannot find the path home. No one would say that people who strive to have all they want are wrong. In fact, there is no other thing which could so successfully create happiness as a condition which a condition provided with all that is good, a condition of self-sufficiency with no wants. You know, it's good to be worthy of respect and veneration. So the the things they're the the ends they're trying to get through with different means are are part of the good and are part of happiness, but but irreducibly so, right? That's what she gets to later that they can't happiness can't be divided any smaller. They just they're not a part in that it can be separated out. They are a they're more like a characteristic of of happiness. They're they're part of happiness's nature in a way that they can't be separated out, and that's. And and then that only comes through that that oneness with the unchanging, right? The unity with the with the unchanging in, in this and in and in Boethus's case, that's God, the source of all the good. Okay, so then if it's impossible for anything to be better than what it came from, mm-hmm. we come from God, and she tells us that while only God is divine by nature we can participate with him in that. Right. We can't be better, but we can participate. The unity that you're talking about, right? That's what that is? Yeah. Yeah. That's the ever... Well, I don't know. I mean, she doesn't actually define participation. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't necessarily explain how it works, but that it does. I mean, maybe that's what, um, you know, Paul is getting at in his epistles about union with Christ that we're united to Christ through our faith, through baptism, through mm-hmm. worship, that, that that those things create a union, which is itself a kind of participation. And then the more we participate, like the more the more through sanctification we participate, the more divinized we're becoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean Peter says that in his epistle, he talks about he, well, you know, it, it uses the Latin word there, of course, in the English, but it's there's it talks about divinization. The 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 Western Church has has a tradition. You know, Western saints that wrote in Latin have a have a tradition of referring to man being divinized. In the East, they use the Greek term theosis. Um, wait, theosis? Yeah, theosis. Um, and then, you know more in the present we typically refer to as glorification which uses the word glorification i think is but it's a similar concept I, I believe yeah i think that we're being made into the image of god wholly and fully and completely but it's through a participation in his nature i think for mm-hmm. theologians of various traditions it, it's it's this it's still a similar idea of continuously becoming like god like christ but never being equal to God, like eternally mm. closer. But you know, it's the it's the what's the what's the math problem? If you get halfway there each time with each step, you never get there, but you get closer. You get infinitely closer without ever reaching yeah. it. It's that same kind Zeno's of concept, paradox. Right? Yeah, Zeno. Thank you. It's, it's an, an asymptote. Yeah, <laughs> it's an asymptote in uh, 
trigonometry, yeah. geometry, uh, whatever. And so while he doesn't explain it here explicitly, or she, she doesn't, at least not in this yeah. in this book, maybe she's going to get to it later, but um, yeah. that I think that's what it's moving toward, that concept of continuously becoming more like the one the one true good and the one where true happiness resides, but without ever completely reaching it. But, but then yet still being satisfied by that. Right? It's still, it's not, a, it's not a, it doesn't seem to be the way she's, the way she's describing it, a never reaching it. That, that is then um, dissatisfied, <laughs> dissatisfying in the way he's unsatisfied now. Okay, the the one that was bitter medicine for me. There was a bitter medicine for me in this chapter, just to be fair in this book, just to be fair. Okay. In section two, mm-hmm. when when she says, uh, "It's cut." So mine starts out with a very very short paragraph, like one sentence paragraph, mm-hmm. and it goes to a very long paragraph. Mm-hmm. At the, near the end of that that long paragraph, it says, mm-hmm. "For that which each seeks in preference to all else, that is." In his judgment, the supreme good. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, what do I seek in preference to all else? Mine doesn't phrase it like that. So, yeah. And is then and then that would be my in my judgment that would that would be the, for me what what I would be communicating is the supreme good in my mind, right? That thing which I pursue the most mm-hmm. in preference to all else. It's probably it's probably money because I'm always fighting about the lights being turned on and the elect and the air conditioning being turn off the turn switch. Turn lights off, kids. <laughs> Why? Who who touched my thermostat? <laughs> I feel like and in the office, you pointed out that you know if there's a little light that's on that thing, it's pulling energy. <laughs> okay, important. Mm-hmm. What did how does yours put it? I, I'm not sure I'm in the same spot as you. So if I go to the end of that first long paragraph, the very last sentence, is that what you read? No, it's like the third to last sentence. Third. Okay. The second. Yeah. I read the second and the, the last. Let's go. The third to last says, it is the perfection of all good things and contains in itself all that is good. And if anything were missing from it, it couldn't be perfect because something would remain outside it, which could still be wished for. The next one. It is clear, therefore, that happiness is a state made perfect by the presence of everything that is good, a state which, as we said, all mortal men are striving to reach, though by different paths. Now I just have one more sentence left in that paragraph. No. Yeah. Okay, my in section two? Yeah, of book three, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the section where she talks about as for friendship, the most sacred kind indeed is counted in the category of virtue, not of fortune. That's, you have that uh, that's our that? second. That's our second paragraph. It's our. I mean, it's our third paragraph, not the second one. There's a little one, another one, oh. and that's the end of our third paragraph. It says, "And for friendship, oh, okay. the purest kind is counted as a mark, not of good fortune, but of moral worth." But yes. all of friendship is cultivated for the sake of power and pleasure. So you're talking yeah, about a yeah. few lines up from there. Okay. Uh, so two. So. One, two, three, four sentences after that in mine. Oh, okay. After that. Oh, yeah. I marked. Okay. I think I think I'm. Um, we have already defined the supreme good as happiness. So that. Right before that. Right before that. 
Each man considers whatever he desires above all else to be the supreme good. Yeah, I marked that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Wait, each man, de- say it again. Each man considers whatever he desires above all else to be the supreme good. Oh, well, that's a different way of putting it then, because yours is saying that I just equate the supreme good with whatever I value. Right. Mine is saying you can tell what my what I think the supreme good is by looking at what I pr- prefer above all else. So in, in our society, we tell people, you know, well, you can t- I can tell what really matters to a person by their checkbook and something else. I forget their calendar. Right, where they spend their time and their money. And now, but and now there's social checkbooks. Or I know, I know, it's anymore. an old phrase. Work with me here. Come on, you're now, not. Now, I'm, now I'm it's the, their I'm, social I'm media. The oldest feed. one on this podcast. Now it's their social media feed. You can tell people care about by their social media feed. <laughs> I just yeah. showed my age. All right, <laughs> <Andrea's> fine. <laughs> Person who's my always little, posting my pocket calculator calendar and my my calculator watch and. My- <laughs> <laughs> pocket ca- calendar i got the big wall one right in front of me desk size here's my calendar <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah. <laughs> so people who are yeah, always so- posting food pics are they're they're it's gluttony for them and it's, it's stomach or well i don't know because <laughs> I mean, that's a good question, right? And not, I mean, that's not the point of the book, I guess. But you know, if, if we were trying to think about it in context of our world, mm-hmm. is the person person posting food pics? Is the person posting food pics? A lot of peas in there and fuzz. Is the person posting food pics because they love food the most, or are they posting food pics because they'll get they'll get Attention. Honor, yeah. attention, reverence, glory, whatever for the quality of the food picks. And the, the reason it's food is because they know that those get or because they think those will get more likes or whatever. Right. Who knows? Oh, man, it'd be or, really fun to, fun to pick like, through different things people do on social media with these. Why they put the food there. I'm like, what if somebody puts food picks on their social media feed? Because it's benign. Right. He's going to fight with me over this one. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the person who Unless is, you put hashtag food porn, then people will get upset. Right. Some people will. Yeah. I don't know enough. I'm out of my realm. But <laughs> so back to my checkbook and my calendar. If you're the kind of What's person who <laughs> You mean the tic-tac-toe symbol? The pound sign? The pound sign. <laughs> Ampersand, baby. Andrea's making it sound like she's 90. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> she's taking a walker away from the recording studio when we're done. Like... I am the oldest one present. <laughs> Where's the cord for this phone? You're, you're I mean, the not only do I present. have more hair than y'all, I have more gray hairs than y'all. Yeah, but you're also probably the like physically healthiest person sitting at the, in, in, this, <laughs> in this recording right now. So it's not like... <laughs> I'll hike and paddle with you anytime. Right. Uh, yeah, it's like the, I, you have to wonder, like, is the person who's spending their time on social media trying to get people like in trouble or canceled or fired or whatever... Is they is that just a way to wield power? Like this is the way to to wield power mm. from a from from you know. Oh dear God, that's half a Twitter, or, right? Or more. Yeah, right. 
Okay, so I let's mean, go back to the book, gentlemen. I know. I want to see. I want to see how these pursuits right. play so out. So if we take that sentence world. that Matt brought us to our attention, and you skip a sentence and go to the next sentence, it says, "So you have before you the general pattern of human happiness." Like, come on, hand it to me, right? I want the general pattern of human happiness: wealth, position, power, fame, pleasure. Right there, it is. This next sentence, help me with. She says, taking only these into consideration, Epicurus with perfect consistency stated that pleasure was the highest good because all the others bring the mind enjoyment. Help me fit that together. You know, okay. Because like I don't right know after, enough about Epicurus to that's, know. Yeah, because right after that, she says, but to return to the pursuits of men, in spite of a clouded memory, the mind seeks its own good, though like a drunkard, it cannot find the path home. All I know is that Epicurus, Epicureans, right? That that was the whole deal was to see. It's like they're like the opposite of the Stoics, right? To seek pleasure, physical pleasure, physical pleasure, typically. But but the argument I think being made is that any of the other things, mm-hmm. the wealth, the power, it what it's ultimately doing for you is giving you pleasure, a sensation of pleasure. It's just mm, not okay. I don't. But I don't I I know I know just enough about Epicurus to know that that's a mischaracterization of Epicurus, not on okay. your part, but on the part of everybody. Like this is common mm. thought about Epicurus. Okay. Epicurus's belief was it, it, and you can just you can sum it up and describe it as the pursuit of pleasure. Mm-hmm. But what it really but what it really is is more like the avoidance of pain. Uh. So what what Epicurus is like, what Epicurus actually says in some places is not to eat good food. Because if you eat good food and you enjoy the pleasure of it, and then later you don't have access to that good food, it will cause pain. So you should actually just only eat very common, ordinary, normal things that you would ever ha- always have access to so that you never shift too far in one direction or the other. Because if you go too far towards pleasure, then everything becomes you know, everything else becomes more painful for you. Um, you know, the la- the loss of that pleasure becomes more painful for you. Mm-hmm. So he's actually kind of all, almost kind of um, moderation. Yeah. 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 So even this like in, even, not just with the amounts, but with the qualities. Is he yeah. one of those? Is he, is he one of the an example of one of those guys who uh, said things and then his followers lived that out in a very different way. Like, you know, they kind of created with the idea of what an Epicurean lifestyle was like later, you know, I don't look at that. Term. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what his followers did with it. I, don't, I wonder if it's people more going back and yeah, like people who his enemies mischaracterizing him and then, and then yeah. we have access to their writings, but not his. And well, or even like, like, even like, like does it simplify things right to a single statement? Um, but I think the I think I think this point still holds that Epicurean is saying Epicurus is saying that those things are ultimately even if it's there ultimately bring you an avoidance of pain, right? Like if if having wealth and having pursuing those things is so you don't experience the pain of not having them, having power. Although he would according to what you're saying, he was saying the loss of it would be worse, right? Yeah. Uh, which is what belief is experiencing right now. But I, I can't go with that. Um, I'm not an Epicurean. Then <laughs> that's what this is. Because I would rather, that's like saying, 
I don't want to experience the high highs of life because I don't want to experience the low lows of life. I'm going right. to live life in the middle. Right. And I can yeah, just yeah. gray, bland, cardboard. I completely yeah. disagree. Yeah. And it's like yeah, the yeah. story you started us with, Matt, of your friend who lost his son, and he, which is a lowest of lows of life. He said, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't, cha-, you know, like, because when you're able to feel the lowest of lows, you can also experience the highest of highs. Yeah. Because I know what good food tastes like, I know what awful food tastes like. Right. And I I, I, I don't yeah. know that Boethius through Lady Philosophy here is saying that Epicurus is even right. Yeah. Either the broader his broader philosophy or even in the statement. But I think she's saying that somewhere in his writings he says that all of the other pursuits are really still a pursuit of pleasure. Um or lack of pain, however you want to, however you want to phrase that. But all of the other ones that she mentioned previously really come down to that when you, when you reduced, I mean, when you, well, and I think that's what she says ends, right after right? that. Yeah. So that's what she says right after that, but to return to the pursuits of men in spite of a clouded memory. And I, she says the mind seeks its own good. Mm-hmm. Um, like a drunkard, it can't find the path home. And I think the drunkenness the clouded memory is because of pursuing these things hmm. falsely and thinking they're satisfying, fulfilling, doing what, you know, the, the that thinking that they are the good, mm-hmm. but they're not. That's my hunch. I yeah, like that, that imagery of it. That one's in blue in mine. So, all right. Well, I think. Uh, I do need to say uh, one more thing, okay. Brandon, because I think you're going to shut me down. I need everybody it. to know I don't even own a paper checkbook. Go ahead now. Okay. <laughs> and I do. So there you go. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, I think we've got ourselves in a good position to think through if this is set up for next, for what's coming, um, what that might look right. like. So I think mm-hmm. it'll be good to, to keep that in mind. Like she was teeing some things up here for whatever, whether it's, whether it's a higher level of philosophy than he's accustomed to, or it's just a tougher road of remembering he needs to, has to go down. Um, at least for me, I want to try and see if I can find some chiasm with in four with two or something like that. It'd be tough. Certainly maybe I have to go back and read the whole thing again at some point to do that more, but now it's on my radar. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. I'm going to watch Jordan book four. <laughs> All right. I want Andrea to bring her uh, chiastic spreadsheet for books. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I like it. Chiastic spreadsheets. So that's going to give me a name for my, uh, yeah. For my Excel service, my Excel services side business is going to be called chiastic spreadsheets. Make all your spreadsheets chiastic. All right. Well, we are, we are, uh, we are about to derail. So let's, <laughs> let's get ready for next week. Uh, thank you all for joining us again uh, on Overdue Classics. You can join us next week when we discuss uh, book four. Um, you can reach out to us with questions or comments at podcast at circeinstitute.org. Um, and make sure to check out our new space over on circle.so. I'll make sure to post that, uh, that link again in the show notes. And we hope you enjoy this show and other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.